0: everyone has their own branding as well, like the way you speak, your knowledge, your level of education, you know, what you do. Uh, although some some people might say, you know, I don't care what people think of me. But then if you are a business and you're out there to convince people to give you money for your product or your service, what people think of you really matters.
1: You're listening to Foodie Canteen. I'm your host, Castle Lim. And in this podcast, I'm sitting down with Southeast Asia's leaders, entrepreneurs and content creators in the F&B space You'll learn about their trade secrets or you'll just find them as your next door neighbour This show is supported by Good Foodie Media For foodie who wants to connect to the world through food They curate the best spots to eat and drink in Malaysia, Bangkok and Singapore Check them out on Instagram for more Today, we have someone on the show who created a vaccination-inspired cocktail. His story is an interesting one. Stick around to find out more. Hi Shen, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: How are you feeling today?
0: Okay, la. it's middle of the week, so it's, I don't know, I'm feeling
1: a bit not like tired too early enough. for you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, for those who might not have heard about you, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh,
0: my name is Shen. I sell t shirts in the day and I make cocktails at night. At least that's what I used to do la, before MCO happened.
1: Okay, so we wanna um, we wanna start from the beginning. Bring us back to two thousand nine when it all started. Tell us your story.
0: Uh, okay, so back in two thousand nine, I was uh, an aspiring but clueless rapper wannabe. <laughs> so I was uh, I was in the music scene sort of uh, as a rapper <clears throat> and. Um, at the same time, I was also a designer. I was studying graphic design. And so I dabbled with designing a bit before. This was still in, I was still in university. And I, for one of my rap performances at one of these gigs or shows, I took a blank trucker cap and I scribbled the word Lancy on the cap and wore it for the show. And that's how the idea for this uh, clothing brand called Lancy came about. Uh, Yeah, so this was in 2009. Uh, People like the cap, they asked me about it, like, you know, is it your cap, this and that. And then it it hit me that it would be a um, good idea to launch it as a clothing brand. And so I decided to uh, make a bunch of caps with the word Lansi on them. And that's how my journey into the clothing industry started.
1: So actually, what does the word Lansi mean? It's in Hokkien, right?
0: Hmm, I think it's, it could be Cantonese. I think it's a very Malaysian slang because like you, you, you use, you ask someone from Hong Kong, what the is, they have no idea. I mean, they don't know what it actually means in our context. So in a Malaysian way, it's cocky, I guess the easier way to say it, it's arrogant, it's cocky, mm. but I see it as, as uh, you know, someone with an aura of attitude, someone with confidence, knowing what they do. That's how, that's how I packaged it. That's how I branded the brand.
1: So back when you wanted to start Lansi, it wasn't as easy as now because there was no Taobao or the internet isn't very accessible as it is today. We have Shopee and Lazada. You can just start anything at any time. Um, But so how how did you manage to roll out your first merchandises?
0: I think back back then, like uh, production wasn't that hard because Alibaba was around. So I think I, I owe my, my entire business to Jack Ma because of Alibaba, but selling was very different. So selling the, the products itself was of course not as easy as it was today. So I, being the naive and clueless kid I was, I hopped on the internet. I hopped on Alibaba and started searching for suppliers that could do caps. So that's how I got my caps made uh, through Alibaba. Um, uh, there was a lot of negotiation going on because as you know, to produce these things, you need like a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand MOQ, but I managed to find someone and negotiated to making just 300 caps in four different colors. Um, and then, yeah, so the selling part was the tough part because as you said, we don't have, we didn't have the luxury of Shopee and different platforms to sell. And, you know, people weren't really buying online 10 years, 12 years ago. So I first started by doing the old school way. I, I took my caps when I received them. I took it around town, around KL to different shops and asking if these streetwear shops would want to stock them. But being an unknown brand and local brands weren't really a thing back then. So no one really fancied the idea of, of selling uh, an unheard of brand in their cool streetwear shop. So uh, after, after trying like a couple of times, I decided to just try selling it online. So like, uh, I mean... Facebook was the thing already back then, but it wasn't as complex as it is. Now we don't have Facebook pages. We don't have Facebook shops. So the only thing we could do is, I could do was uh, Facebook groups, right? So I started a Facebook group um, and I named it, okay, the name is very, very long. Okay, it's like, if uh, 5,000 people join this group, I would tattoo the word Lancia on my body. I started inviting people on it. And I guess that is, I wouldn't say it's viral because it didn't go like, it didn't reach like a lot of people, but people started inviting their friends, you know, and just random people joining a group, hoping to see this idiot make a fool out of himself. And it did hit around 3000 people in a very short span of time, like two weeks, 3000 people. And that's when I started to panic because I didn't think that it would be, it would be a thing. So I sneakily switched the name of the group to just Lansi and I uploaded photos that I took off my caps So now back then, when you change, I think even today, if you change the name of a group, Facebook will notify all the members. So instantly I reached out to 3000 people. Some people already forgotten why they joined the group or they joined the group randomly. So they clicked to see what was this group again. And that's when they saw the caps. And out of those 3000 people, i managed to sell my cap to one person or at least one or two through that group. So that's how it kind of started.
1: So do you think like this type of marketing works now? Like if you were still to do this in 2021 in Facebook?
0: I think it, it can. I don't know because back then, people weren't really selling things on Facebook. Today, everyone is just, everyone's trying to sell you something. Everyone's on Facebook for business. No one's there for leisure anymore or news, lah, I guess. But so it might be a bit saturated now, but I still believe in the power of, of viral marketing. It's I, back when I was in advertising, like like my bosses and my colleagues always would say like, you cannot create a viral content. Viral is something that just happens when you hit the right time and right people and right moment, which I agree, but it also takes a bit of creativity and, and thinking and planning in order to create something that goes viral, right? So I'm not saying viral as in something stupid or something uh, just for entertainment purposes, but viral as in something that people want to share with their friends. And that's like word of mouth marketing in today's era. So yes, it can still work, but it's going to be so much harder because people are so used to people trying to sell them things online and they wouldn't, you know, be so easily conned into spending their money into just another product.
1: Yeah, um, like you said, um, when you started a Facebook group, even though 3,000 people joined, you managed to sell caps to one to two person. So when was the first wave that uh, Lancy picked up and uh, was able to manage to read your first round of customers? Was it, I heard, at a festival?
0: Oh yeah, I, that was... I think this is already like three to three years down the road. Two years, it was 2012. I would say that was my big break. Like prior to that, like 2009, 2012, I've been selling to friends and random friends of friends. So it was really just, uh, I set up my booth at, at little hip hop shows, selling two to three caps a night, things like that. I sold some online. But I think the big break was during this Tiger Asian Music Festival. So this was like a huge music event, Chinese music event. They had like LMF, they had the remaining members of Beyond and things like that. And I didn't, I underestimated the event. I didn't think it, was, it would be as big as it would be because I personally don't really listen to Chinese music. So I didn't know what big of a deal it was. So um, that event held at Sunway Lagoon in 2012, I think it attracted about 40,000 people oh, pre COVID days. And then um, we got the job to be the official merchandise. So we printed the t-shirts with our branding specifically for that event. So it's like a concert t-shirt right? yeah, for the list of bands that were playing on the back and then our branding on the front. So that was a hit. And all the people there, I would say like 99.8% were Chinese. And that really opened us to the Chinese market because before that, like um, our customers were like 90% Malay because I really believe that back then it was really the Malay kids who would really support a locally made brand. You know, they would be the first in line to buy something that's Malaysian-made. So this event opened us up to the other demographic, which is the Chinese demographic. And that set the brand, you know, put it on a, on a different path from there. So,
1: so why did you switch from Lansi to later the Swagger Salon, which is a brick and mortar store that you have now in Georgetown?
0: The Swagger Salon started as an online store, actually. Because it was also... So after the whole Facebook thingy, that I tried out, I when when sales started picking up and by picking up, I meant like, Oh, like I'm selling like five caps now instead of just one, you mm-hmm. know, it's, I realized like it wasn't very, uh, feasible because I had, a, I had a day job then. So right after uni, when I started the caps, then about a year after that, like 2010, I had a job. So having a job sitting in the office all day, I cannot just randomly go to malls and meet up with people to, to pass them the cap anymore. So my first cap, I met up this guy at Laoyette Plaza. Second cap was in like Sunday Pyramid or something like that. So once I had a job, I couldn't do that anymore, right? Because I was in advertising and there was literally no free time in your life. So I started the Swagger Salon um, also because no other clothing store wanted to stop my caps, right? So it was supposedly this online clothing, online streetwear store that would sell my caps, my brands and other brands who probably face the same problems as I did getting a retail outlet to sell. Yeah, so back then, yeah, this is back then and really like online online uh, shops weren't so common yet you know it's not everyone can jump on Shopee this and that so I built a website for for the Swagger Salon and that's how it started. Um, I wanted to use the Swagger Salon instead of Lancy because I felt like it the Lancy thing might just be a fad you know it might be something that people might get sick of after a year. So at least with the Swagger Salon I can have like an umbrella and two different brands under it. But it turned out that until today people still want the Lancy brand more than anything else left. Yeah. So that's how the Swagger Salon came about.
1: Yeah, and then um I've visited your uh, shop before. So Swagger Salon in the front. Can you tell us what's in the back?
0: So yeah, it's a so the Swagger Salon is a clothing store on the front. Uh there's a little door at the back. You go through the door, uh, you come out into a whole different world. Narnia. Yeah, it's uh it's a little bar called uh, Backdoor Bodega. So backdoor bodega is actually it started as a little Pantry bar for us, me and the guys who work at the shop and friends. That's what it started as, like twenty sixteen. Now it's a proper cocktail bar.
1: I see. So I mean, a couple of years ago, speakeasy bars were on the rise, um, with multiple speakeasy bars in Georgetown. However, not many survive until today. What do you think is the secret recipe for Backdoor Bodega still? I mean, functioning until today. I mean, right now it's MCO, but you're still selling uh, products and whatnot.
0: I think, uh, there. Are, actually, I, I don't have an, a direct answer for that, but I feel like the few things that made the Bodega slightly different was number one. I am not from a bar background. I wasn't a bartender. I wasn't a mixologist. So I guess I saw things differently and I did things differently. I'm not saying that I did all the right things differently, but differently in a sense when I started the bar, it was more of an idea. Like, uh, so 2016, uh, I was in KL for like 10 years prior to that. So, you know, you take for granted all the cocktail bars that are available in KL. So when I came back to Penang, I wanted to go for a cocktail. There were no cocktail bars besides Mishmash. Everywhere else was like, beers, you know, clubs, there were no cocktail bars. So I thought like, okay, then I'll just set up a little cocktail bar. And you have to go back to the origins of a cocktail bar, the speakeasy. So the reason why speakeasies came about was because of the prohibition era in the 1920s in the U S right. And cocktails came about because people uh, from from speakeasies themselves. So all these hidden bars, they weren't allowed to sell uh, alcohol legally. So they had to think of ways to serve their drinks. You know, that's how, you know, you probably have a a Long Island iced tea because it does not look like alcohol, you know, but it it actually is an alcohol. So that's how cocktails basically came about. So I, being the idealistic guy I am and the branding guy I am, I decided that if I were to set up a speakeasy bar, it has to be somewhat of a real speakeasy. So that's how Backdoor Bodega was branded as a pin shop, right? So the initial idea was you come to Backdoor, uh, we are a pin shop. We don't sell drinks, but if you buy a pin at this price, you get a drink for free. So technically that's, you know, how it would work. So I was really, uh, happy about the whole concept because it worked that way. But then it also turned out that people really like this little quirky nonsense. And that's why I guess people kept coming because of the whole, oh, you pin, So the whole little concept, which wasn't really the initial idea for me to market the way. In fact, but Bodega has been really anti-marketing. We've been trying not to market ourselves because it's such a small place and we really don't want to uh, be a mainstream bar since we started.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your vaccination-inspired cocktails. How did you develop this idea?
0: Uh, I have to give credit to Giaps, who's my manager bartender. <laughs> so he he was the one that came up with the the vaccine idea. Um, this was right after the second no, like this year's lockdown, which is which was in May, right? Um, and then uh, that point we didn't know how long the lockdown was was gonna take. So at the end of May, then I we had this little. Meeting and I told them like, okay guys, I think we gotta get back to doing bottled cocktails because this is gonna last a while. Um, and so we brainstormed for ideas and Yap said, oh, why don't we, you know, do like a vaccine-inspired cocktail? And then I found out that the bottles that we were using for our takeaway cocktails, uh, which were introduced to us by CK from Kohli and JL, uh, they were actually legit um, injection vials. You know, so like like for all injections, all the antibiotics that come packaged, it's in those vials. Those are the exact bottles for it. So I felt that it fit perfectly for the concept. And then I got to designing the, the different uh, brands of the cocktails. And we, we actually put quite a bit of thought into it. Like So we have like, the Pfizer-Meister, which is a um, play on the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, Pfizer is a German brand so we used all the German ingredients and that's how Jägermeister came into it um, then there's the Sino Sour play on the Sinovac so it's Baijiu and all the sour plum kind of Chinese elements and then there's the extra Gineca, which is a play on the AstraZeneca which is British, uh, English or British I don't know so there's, there's gin, there's London Dry Gin, there's Pimps you know, there's all the English ingredients that's how we came up with the whole concept
1: and how did the community receive it? Did they receive it really well?
0: Yeah, I think we might have accidentally went viral again. Ish. <laughs> because uh, um, I guess it's also because it's something that people want to show. I mean, like, I guess everyone is stuck at home and they want something for their feed, something for their story. So I feel it worked towards our advantage. Um, I also felt like it's very... Um, uh, some people might think it's not a good thing, you know, it's not really the craft or or the cocktail or what. But then I feel like something, it's kind of similar to the Lansi brand whereby it becomes somewhat of a novelty item whereby it's something that you really want to share with your friends. So people, actually a lot of people, like half the customers that buy the clothes from my store actually are buying it for someone else because they think it's a nice gift for someone that they know. So I think this is also the same case whereby we have a lot of people that are buying for their friends. And also they felt you know, it's something that they are really excited about and they want to share. So that really worked in our favor, I guess, and kept the lights on for the past couple of months so far.
1: What was the most interesting branding campaign you've done?
0: <sighs> Don't blow my own trumpet, I feel like <laughs> it would be back though. because <laughs> I felt like the most satisfaction really would come from, uh, from the designs and the branding that I did for back, because it's a, it's when it's your own thing, where there's no stress involved. There's no custom, no client, so to speak, that you have to fulfill uh, the uh, their uh, expectations or requirements. When it's every, when it's just yours, and it turns out uh, to be a viable business as well. That no, that shows that the branding actually works as well. So that's a different level of fulfillment for me. I would say. Of course, there are other um, clients that I work with, which. I'm happy to to see the results, to see the things go up. But then it's not always 100% as something that I do on my own, for my own self, because you won't have someone else's feedback that you don't agree with, that you have to comply to, things like that. So, yeah, I would say it's back. <laughs> and
1: on the other end, what's the most mundane?
0: Oh, there's a lot of mundane jobs. I mean, I... I don't really do a uh, complete brand. I mean, like there are mundane jobs that I work on still day to day basis. Like nowadays, like uh, random writing jobs that I get for weighing machines, commercial weighing machines. I have uh, one, which is like uh, for machinery parts a uh, manufacture for machinery parts things like that, insurance. But you have to understand, although these are mundane and boring, these are industries that make a a lot of money that I'll probably never see in my lifetime. (laughs) But then it's, it's nice to know that, you know, at the end of the day, they still need branding. You know, they still need uh, writing work, which is essential because that's the, that's how you build a brand, so to speak. And a business would need proper branding in order to,
1: Let's talk a little bit about uh, since you have mentioned why is branding so important regardless if you're a cool brand like Backdoor Bodega or you say uh, can I quote-unquote boring brand like a weighing, weighing company?
0: Because I feel like it is uh, a standard that you have to set. So branding is a, it's a long-term thing, right? It's not just the logo. It's not just the tagline. It's everything in the name of your company. So uh, a company is one thing, but branding is usually, you know, it's for a product. It's not a product or a service, right? Which a business provides. And sure, you can have a non-branded thing, like an OEM thing, but even the manufacturer that produces these uh, things, the OEM things, that supplies, all these things, they also need to have a reputation, right? You need to make people know that you are reputable, you are of good quality. And that's where branding comes in. Because if you cannot show yourself, it's it's basically, you can put it as a person. Lah. You as a person, everyone has their own branding as well. Like the way you speak, your knowledge, your level of education, you know, what you do. Uh, although some, some people might say, you know, I don't care what people think of me, but then... If you are a business and you're out there to convince people to give you money for your product or your service, what people think of you really matters. So that's how I would say why branding is important.
1: What are some tips you can give away for businesses or even individuals who are looking to develop a strong brand image?
0: Um, Don't go cheap with your designer and copywriter. (laughs) I would say like, yeah, uh, language. I mean, like, I'm not trying to say like everyone needs to use English for their business, but if you are using English, make sure that it's proper English. If it's Mandarin or anything else, make sure it's a proper language. And, you know, don't go cheap on that. Don't like, Oh, if you want to sell to an English market and you want your branding to be English and you want to, Oh, I don't want to pay this guy to write for me. I'm just going to try it myself. You know, no one's going to take you seriously because if you can't make sure that you are like your own brand or own product is perfect, you know, how can you convince people to spend their money on you? One, last, one
1: last question. Um, you've been in this for more than 10 years now, since 2009 from Lansi to Backdoor Bodega to Swagger Salon. And then um, you're still here um, doing branding for uh, mundane companies, but also branding for yourself. What is one lesson you say you have learned in this decade?
0: Hmm. Always take like a deposit first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say... Uh, I would say you need to understand your your audience very well. So if it's my own business, that's easy because you would know. I would know who I want to target to. It's easier for me to understand the market. If it's for a client, eh, you have to understand who their customers are, who their potential customers are. If they're a new business, uh, so that's how I learned. Like when I started, that's how I got the F and B actually because I wasn't from an F and B background, but it's because working with cafes restaurants for their branding I start to learn like oh what it takes to run this business and then when you know what it takes to run the business only then you can sell the product properly to the to the people that would actually are the correct consumer for that brand
1: thank you so much Shen for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us I myself have learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners are gonna feel the same way too
0: thank you for having me
1: take care You You have just listened to Foodie Canteen. Special thanks to Shen for sharing his story. This show is produced by me, your host, Castle Lim, and co written by Mei Wei Kua. Foodie Canteen podcast is made possible by the excellent team at Good Foodie Media. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Foodie Canteen for more, and follow us for brand new episodes every Friday. Thanks for listening.